You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com. In prayer, Father, Lord, uh, Lord, we do thank you for your word. And Lord, um, we know that your word has a purpose and that when your word goes forth, it goes forth to produce um, change and repentance and correction and encouragement and so much more in our lives and in our hearts. And so, um, Lord, we, we trust and we know that there is nothing that can stop your word from being preached, nothing that can stop your gospel from doing the work that you intended it to do. And so, um, so Lord, we just, just ask that you would do that, that you would do that in and through me once again for the third time this morning. Um, Lord, I, I just believe in your sovereignty and, and trust that you're a good father and uh, you must have some spectacular reasons for me to, uh, even as a preacher, to soak in this message myself. And so, uh, Father, in the midst of uh, um, uh, the irony of the, the limitations and the restrictions of technology, um, here we trust that your gospel and your word is unlimited and unrestricted. Uh, Lord, we love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, what fun it is to pray, um, even through the theme of what I'm about to preach about um, so I want to begin by talking about restrictions and limitations. Um, again, a little bit ironic uh, for us uh, today. Uh, restrictions and limitations really are a fact of life, aren't they? Uh, I really, as a person, as a human, you might think about this. Think about your limitations uh, that, that wind up restricting uh, your life a little bit. Uh, I am a limited person. And um, I'm limited because I'm a human being. Um, and therefore, because of those limitations, I live with a certain uh, kind of sense of weakness uh, deep down inside of me. Those weaknesses, those limitations, they restrict me from enjoying certain things, certain freedoms, if, if you will. I can't work uh, 24 hours a day, limited in that way. I can't spend more money than I actually have or it'll get me into trouble. So I'm limited, uh, restricted in uh, that way. Uh, um, really only can maintain a certain amount of close relationships. So I'm, I'm limited there. Can't be friends with everybody. Uh, my personality has its own kind of unique uh, uh, limitations. Uh, I'm limited in, uh, in, in, a, in a certain way, in, 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 in the ways that I'm wired, my personality, my giftings, my talents. Um, I don't possess all of the gifts and talents um, that are out there. I don't even possess a lot of the spiritual gifts and talents that other people do, so I don't get to uh, maybe experience some of the freedoms or joys that others might um, experience. I'm sure you know what this is like when you see someone who is really talented in a certain way. Um, think about it this way. I, I don't know everything, although sometimes I act like I do, sometimes I wish that I did know everything, don't know everything, uh, therefore I don't have all the answers to all of life's uh, biggest questions, uh, which can cause some great deep frustration and anxiety inside of me at times. I can't see everything. Um, I mean, I do wear glasses, but uh, you know, I can't see everything that's coming uh, down the pike. So sometimes I'm, I'm caught off guard um, by unforeseen circumstances that I didn't see coming around the bend, right? Uh, not in control of everything. Certainly not in control of very many things. would like to be in control of more things because I'm a little bit of a control freak. Again, you, you might 
um, be able to identify uh, with that. But because uh, I'm not in control of very many things, um, sometimes experience great fear when the circumstances of life feel like or appear to be or just simply are spiraling out of control. I don't have a lot of power. Um, I, I certainly don't have the power to make someone accept me. I don't have the power to make someone listen to me. So, so there's times when I experience the, the frustration or the anger um, that, that accompanies that loss of power when, when maybe when someone rejects me or someone ignores me. At the end of the day, I'm limited by these realities and, and therefore uh, I am restricted from enjoying certain things, certain privileges you might say, or certain freedoms. Now, my limitations um, often show up in different ways. Think about the ways that uh, your limitations, um, your weaknesses uh, might show up in your life. Uh, they show up in our uh, emotional lives. They show up in our physical lives. They show up in our, our social and our, and our spiritual lives. Uh, when, when those limitations pop up, we, we would say that um, it's kind of like uh, we, we, we are emotionally or physically or socially or spiritually uh, limited, right? Like some shortcomings, some, some weaknesses there. But when I think about these different categories, I think about emotionally. Emotionally, sometimes I can just become a, a little bit oversensitive. That, that's a limitation. That's a, a weakness in my life. When I think about physicality, just, just physically speaking, I'm 40 some years old and uh, I get worn out a lot faster than I did back when I was 20 years old. So, you know, physically, I, I get more easily worn out now than, than I used to. So it's a limitation, it's a weakness, it's a fact of life. Socially, uh, when I think about my social life, there are times where I can become kind of isolated. On the other hand, sometimes I become a little overloaded, right? Um, spiritually, uh, I, there, there's weakness inside of me. Times when I become apathetic, bored with God almost, or, or even at times uh, at, at, at another level, prideful, arrogant because of all that I know and all that I've been studying about God. So there's some weakness there, some, some limitations. Really, at the end of the day, I'm not perfect, <laughs> and neither are you. Um, at the end of the day, you and I, we aren't God, even though we oftentimes strive to be God. I am not God. God sees all things. He, he knows all things. He's in control of all things. Um, he, he has this full and complete and perfect ability to love completely and, and unconditionally all the broken things in this world. So, so the bottom line here is that I am limited. You are limited too. And because we are limited, we are restricted in some sense. Uh, but the, the beautiful thing is that the God is unlimited. There's no limitations on God. There's no restrictions on God. He is unlimited and therefore unrestricted. Now, this really is a gospel truth uh, that we need to continue to get into our hearts it's a gospel-saturated truth that I believe the Apostle Paul, who wrote the book of Philippians, as well as um, a good significant portion of the New Testament, 
I believe this is a gospel-saturated truth that the Apostle Paul held onto with every ounce of his being. If ever there was a man in all of Scripture uh, who could have fallen into some really deep despair, and I think at times maybe he even did, over his circumstances, then I believe the Apostle Paul was probably near the top of the list of people in Scripture, humans in Scripture, who were limited and would fall into great despair maybe because of those weaknesses. If you survey the Apostle Paul's life, you'd have to start in 1 Corinthians 11. We don't have time to look at it um, together, so I just encourage you to go take a look at it. 1 Corinthians 11, you see this survey of Paul's lengthy list of things that he suffered. That, that, that chapter in 1 Corinthians 11, I think, would serve as a really great pretext or foundation to establish um, the very difficult circumstances in Paul's life. If you look at Galatians chapter 6 and verse 17, um, those verses describe how Paul's circumstantial suffering had marked him deeply. I think he actually says something to the effect of that I bear the marks of Christ in my body, not just like on them, but it's like something that had affected him deeply, deep down to the very center of his being, deep down into his heart. He was marked by Christ suffering of Christ. Second Timothy 3, 10 through 11, Apostle Paul describes three different cities where he was persecuted, suffered greatly for the cause of the gospel. Further on in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 9 through 10, or 9 through 18, um, he, he describes this really deep personal pain, this deep emotional harm that was done to him by those who had abandoned him, rejected him, attacked him. He describes the personal pain and the emotional harm, the, the loneliness that he experienced in that season because of his devotion to the advancement of the gospel. He even says in those verses, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 9 through 18, he even says that, man, nobody was with me. Nobody stood with me. Everyone abandoned me. Everyone deserted me. I was alone except for the Lord. The Lord was there. Like Paul held on to this truth that there is no limitation, no restriction on Christ, on God, the point of the gospel. If you looked at Acts 16, 19 through 24, <clears throat> you would see a description of some of the abuse that Paul endured when he first preached the gospel in the city of Philippi, which is um, where a church erupted, that then Paul later writes this book of Philippians to. You, you'd see all the horrific things that happened to him there. See, the apostle Paul knew what it was like to be a limited man. And since he knew what it was like to be a limited man, he knew what it's like to be a restricted man. <clears throat> but he also knew that there is no limitation and no restriction on the gospel. Paul is the very same apostle who wrote elsewhere that the gospel is of first importance according to 1 Corinthians 15. And that the gospel is powerful. The gospel alone is powerful for salvation in Romans chapter 1. He also wrote that we must constantly, constantly be guarding our hearts against any false gospel that seeks to advance its way, make its way into our hearts and lives. He wrote about this throughout the entire book of Galatians. Apostle Paul was extremely devoted to the centrality 
and the power and the advancement of the gospel. And this is overwhelmingly obvious in the text we're going to look at today. If you look at Philippians chapter 1 verses 12 through 18 with me, look at what Paul says there. Beginning in verse 12, he says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. So it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. Most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Now you can't help but to notice how the gospel saturates these verses. I mean, a simple summary of what Paul is saying in these verses is that uh, the gospel is unlimited. It's, it's unrestricted. And the unlimited, unrestricted gospel is advancing among unbelievers as well as believers in the midst of or through opposition. <clears throat> you think about the reaction of Paul's heart here to his current circumstances. The reaction of Paul's heart to these current circumstances is saturated with the gospel, the unlimited, the unrestricted gospel. It's advancing, it's moving forward, it's taking ground, it's not stale, it's not complacent. The gospel is moving, it's advancing, even in the midst of Paul's limited and restricted circumstances. I mean, here's the deal. The limitations and the restrictions of my life do not limit or restrict the power of the advancement of the gospel. These are truths that we can rest in. See, in the Apostle Paul, we see a man whose heart was absolutely 100% completely captured in change, you might say by the crucified, risen, and returning Christ. That's the only cause that was worthy of capturing the Apostle Paul's heart and mind. There's no other cause worthy of the devotion of Paul's heart. No room in Paul's heart. No, no, no hallway no little closet, no, no bedroom for intimacy with any other false gospel, any other cause other than the cause of the gospel itself. See, if the heart is the heart of the matter, then in the Apostle Paul, what we have is a picture, a model, if you will, of absolute unwavering devotion to the gospel of the crucified, risen, and returning Christ. Paul was devoted to preaching and applying the gospel to every aspect of his life. Why? Because for him and for us, the gospel is more than just this cute little conclusion to a message. 
The gospel is more than a five-step program to land some kind of an invitation for unbelievers to come follow Jesus. It's, it's, it is some of those things, but it's more than that. See, for the Apostle Paul, the message of the gospel is not a closing remark to some kind of a legalistic or moralistic or even ethical message. The Apostle Paul would never um, boil down the message of the gospel to some cute little thing. Of the message of the gospel was everything for the Apostle Paul. The gospel was the content, the main thing of every message for the Apostle Paul. In other words, uh, the message of Christ crucified, risen, and returning. That message holds immense implications for all of life. Not just tiny little parts of life, but for all of life from the moral to the ethical in light of the eternal. Why? Because the gospel is unlimited and therefore is unrestricted. And so what the gospel does is it's un, in its unlimited, unrestricted form is it like gets down and it seeps into the limitations and the restrictions and the weaknesses of my heart. And it just does really good gospel damage, right? Damage in a sense that it damages the broken places it opens those places so that it can then rip out infection and heal, rebuild, form, transform. So, how do we see this principle, this big massive principle of the gospel being unlimited, unrestricted, not weak, advancing? How, how do we see this massive principle fleshed out in Philippians 1, 12 through 18? Oh, well, first of all, in Verses 12 through 13, uh, we see that the unlimited, unrestricted gospel advances among unbelievers, right? So th put that category in your mind for just a, a few moments. Think about this category of, of unbelievers. And when I think about this as a believer, um, I think about what, what I observe and what I experience in the world, Okay. See, it's very easy to, to observe and to, to experience all of the horrors, all the sickness, all the brokenness um, erupting in the world around us, in, this, in an unbelieving world. And in those moments, it's easy to become depressed, right? Or, or become angry, become antagonistic, kind of go to war with everything that is wrong in the world. Um, not necessarily wrong in and of itself altogether. All when I observe and when I experience all the pain, all the horror of, of all the things that are happening out there in the unbelieving world on, on, a, on a daily basis, it's, it's kind of like the world that we live in. Um, it's almost like it's tilted, right? It's tilted towards this, this mass celebration of everything that God calls evil. When I experience that, when I observe it, it, it just makes me feel really uncomfortable. It's a loss of comfort makes me feel really helpless. It's a, it's a loss of power. It makes me feel powerless, helpless. Uh, ma makes, me, makes me fear re re rejection uh, or lack of acceptance. Like, like I, I have no place in the world. Like no place where I fit in. I'm sure you know what this is, is like. And when I experience these things, what happens is some something inside of me kind of awakens, right? 
I, I kind of call it like a kind of moral activist. This moral activist inside of me kind of gets stirred up. It gets awakened, right? Puts on his war hat, grabs his guns, ready to, to go to work, go, go, to, go to war, make something happen, change something out there in the world. This little moral activist wakes up inside of me, starts running little circles around inside my heart, yelling and screaming. And what happens is I just want to jump up and down. <laughs> That's what I want to do. I want to jump up and down. I want to scream at the top of my lungs. I want to get myself into a picket line, hold up signs and, and make some change. I want to protest all the sin that I see in the sin-infected culture that I feel at times like I'm just shackled to. I'm, I'm stuck in it. I can't, can't escape it, right? So I might as well go at war against it. The question that I have about this is it's like is that the heart response of the Apostle Paul like does does the Apostle Paul become the great social activist does he become this this massive political force does he go on a tirade and in like a campaign um, as a national activist like get this nation back under control is that is that is that his stance I, mean, I, I want to know because I want to be like the Apostle Paul. I, I believe the Apostle Paul is trying to be like Jesus, so I want to be like Jesus. <clears throat> and if Apostle Paul has taken his cues from the crucified, risen, and returning Christ, then what kind of an activist does Paul become? What kind of an activist does he become? Notice what he says in verses 12 through 13. He says, I want you to know, brothers that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. That, that last phrase, that my imprisonment is for Christ, I think that's a telling statement. You see, you think about the limitations and the restrictions of Paul's chains. Those limitations, those restrictions of Paul's chains being chained to a Roman guard they only serve to advance the unlimited unrestricted gospel among unbelievers so think about this for a minute it's not inconceivable to think that somewhere upwards of maybe 9,000 Roman guards were part of what uh, uh, Paul calls here the imperial guard it's kind of like kind of like the, the special forces or the, or the green berets or the, the navy seals right I mean these guys were top dogs in the Roman military not inconceivable to think there are roughly 9,000 members of that elite force Roman force now these guys I mean the Roman guards they were known for their brutality they were known for taking sin to the next level they're brutal and yet Paul's chained to them. So it's not inconceivable to think that maybe all 9,000 of them could have heard the gospel simply because some of them had been chained to the Apostle Paul on a rotating basis day and night. And now if you look further in context, again, context always dictates the message, right? Always dictates the meaning. What's he trying to say? What are the circumstances? What's going on? What's happening Context dictates the message. So in context, when you look at the end of the book of Philippians, this letter to the Philippian church, 
In chapter 4, verses 21 through 22, Paul says, catch this, greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. The brothers. All the saints who are with me greet you. Now catch this. Last thing he says, especially those of Caesar's household. What does that mean? That means that some of the Roman guards that the Apostle Paul is chained to, that he's been sharing the message of the gospel with, they've now become believers. Now, I just find that interesting because Paul is chained to them. They're, they're responsible for him, and yet he's saying they're brothers, they're saints. See, the unlimited, unrestricted gospel was advancing among the unbelieving Roman guards despite the limitations and the restrictions of the Apostle Paul's circumstances. You've got to remember something about the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul was a Hebrew who was also a Roman citizen. So, so this would be similar in some ways. I can't stretch it too far, but there'd be similarities here. He was a Hebrew who was a Roman citizen, which would be similar to us being a Christians who are American citizens. You want some proof of this textually? Go to Philippians uh, chapter 3, verses 4 through 5, and Acts chapter 22, verse 28. You'll see that Paul was a Hebrew who was a Roman citizen. And then if you flip over to Acts chapter 16, you start to look at the way the Apostle Paul um, fleshes this out, how he lives out the message of the gospel. In Acts 16, the Apostle Paul does not use his rights as a Roman citizen to escape being imprisoned and beaten for preaching the gospel in Philippi, the people he's writing to. He doesn't use his rights to escape that punishment. He could have, but he didn't. Now, here's the funny thing. If you go over to, um, if you go over to Acts 22, um, verse 3, and then 24 through 29, Paul's in a much different place. He's in Jerusalem now, not in Philippi anymore. And in that case, he does use his rights as a Roman citizen to escape the punishment that they were going to try to inflict upon him in Jerusalem. So two different cities. Um, same citizenship, same uh, authoritative government overseeing those cities. And in Jerusalem, he does not use his rights. Oh, what, is that? what happens then? It propels the Apostle Paul through this series of events that eventually lands him on house arrest in Rome. And according to verse, uh, verse 31 of chapter 28 in Acts, um, He's on house arrest in Rome, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Now, I, I got to be honest with you, in my human weakness, in my limitations, in my restrictions, if I'm on house arrest there because the guys who should have been my buddies turned me into the cops and I got put there, right? I, I'd be ticked, okay? Like my messages may not be so Christ-centered, but the Apostle Paul somehow, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, under the power of God, under the unlimited, unrestricted advancement of the gospel in his own heart and life, preaches the gospel. This is what he's known for. This is what he's in prison for. He's in prison for Christ. <clears throat> he's not in prison because he took up some great bandwagon cause to jump on. He's in prison because he preached Christ. And he's doing that without hindrance while in prison, according to Acts 28. 
It all comes together. And you think again about being a Roman guard, right? You've now just begun following Jesus because this dude that you're attached to, chained to, has shared the gospel with you. And one of the questions that goes through your mind is, man, how can I be a Roman guard anymore? This seems like uh, a kind of a, an ethical, moral conundrum, doesn't it? So what do you do? Quit the job? Protest the government? Protest your boss? Maybe? What do you do? I just I imagine what it would have been like to um, be a Roman guard in that moment. New believer, chained to the Apostle Paul. Getting to know Paul's story. Getting to know his testimony. Learning about the ways that he allowed the, the gospel to, to motivate him and move him. I'd hear the story then of a man whose heart so totally captivated by the message of the crucified, risen, and returning Christ that he was actually willing to sacrifice his rights for the sake of the advancement of the gospel among believers on one hand at times. And then at other times, he would leverage his rights for the advancement of the gospel. Now, I don't have the reference, but I do know that some of Paul's opponents, I believe in uh, Corinthians, uh, even accused him of being inconsistent. This would be one of those reasons why. And yet I don't think he was inconsistent. I think the Apostle Paul had the, the wisdom and the knowledge and the love and the discernment to know when and when not to either sacrifice or leverage his rights. And I think that would have shaped and molded, conformed, transformed the hearts of other new believers in his life, such as these Roman guards. Man, this, you think about what Paul wrote just last week and then the verses we studied last Sunday. When he's praying that the Philippians would be full of God's love, the, the knowledge of God, and the discernment of God. That would be my prayer for me, for us too, for you as you're listening to this. Pray that the Lord would give us knowledge, give us wisdom, discernment as to how we might also sacrifice as well as leverage at times our rights so that we might give an answer for the hope that lies within us with all gentleness and respect. And it's interesting, those two words, gentleness and respect, while giving the answer for the hope that lies within us, this is in accordance with 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15. Interesting how we love the give the answer for the hope that lies within you, but we absolutely detest the part that says gentleness and respect. Prayers that we might be a people that would give an answer for the hope that lies within us with gentleness and respect in this polarizing season of difficulty and suffering and bewilderment. Now you look at the second thing that we see in this text in verse 14, shift gears. You see the unlimited, unrestricted gospel advancing among believers. So we thought about the unbelieving world for a little bit. Let's think about the believers for a moment. We believers can be kind of a, uh, a weird crowd. And I think that's probably putting it lightly sometimes. Um, if I just think about myself, a little more than weird. Um, you think about this journey, uh, what it means to begin following Jesus and then to, to, to grow as we follow Jesus, to grow towards maturity, right? Um, you think about the different stages of a person's growth at some point you're a baby and then you're an adolescent and then you're like a young adult and then you're an adult right in those stages of growth so many weird things that happen um, 
And the moment that someone places their trust in Jesus, this is a beautiful moment, isn't it? Right? Usually, um, it's exciting when someone places their faith in Christ. Someone trusts in Jesus for salvation. And oftentimes, the very next season of that young believer's life, um, oftentimes is a very beautiful season. It's a beautiful season of excitement and, and like wonder, awe, exploration, learning, and proclamation. I mean, when you find an authentic young believer who's just begun following Jesus, they, they, they don't keep their mouth shut about Jesus. They're so excited. They're so in love, so saturated, so captured by the wonders of this whole new world they've stepped into. can't shut them down right all of this happens as the implications of the good news of the gospel of the crucified risen and returning christ begin to permeate the desires of this person's heart those desires for power and control and safety and comfort and acceptance all those desires begin to get reshaped conformed transformed by the message of the crucified risen and returning christ Something weird <coughs> begins to happen oftentimes in the life of a believer. Usually it begins to happen within 15 seconds of beginning to follow Jesus. At some point, at some point, it's as though something shifts. Sometimes this is seasonal. Natural, it's normal for all of us. Good for us to, to know about, be warned about, be thinking about. This season, this, this really strange season that we slip into is a season where the good news of the gospel of the crucified, risen, and returning Christ, that great news, that wonderful news that once had us so excited, so captured, that good news becomes old news. What once excited us, what, what once enlivened us, what once uh, emboldened us as young believers in the proclamation and the advancement of the gospel, that becomes dull becomes unimpressive uh, much like some some adults who might go sit in some kind of a, a kindergarten class right you'd be bored with the material i thought earlier that this would be very much like that that first time you get that brand new shirt and man you just love wearing it. you love showing it off and then over time it be begins to hang in your closet for longer periods of time you don't wear it as much because you got some new shirt that that now has captured your attention See, in these moments, the message of the gospel uh, that used to be the good news that just so totally captured our imaginations, our desires, our affections. That good news now becomes boring, becomes childish news as new and more exciting news begins to flash across the news feeds deep down inside of our hearts. Now, sometimes this new good news, this new good news gospel message, if you want to call it that, it's like it's, it's a very obvious kind of a, an anti-gospel message, um, really to the extent, right, that the, this new maturing uh, believer, somebody who's growing up now and kind of got some of the, the pieces put together, uh, this new believer is now getting caught up in something very obviously anti-gospel called the health, wealth, and prosperity message, right? We come follow Jesus, your life's going to be great, your marriage is going to be fixed, your kids are going to be awesome you're going to have a bunch of money in your bank you're never going to get sick consequently you're probably never going to die either right 
that kind of a message, and, and by the way, on top of that, make sure you give all your money to us because that's going to aid you in getting all the good things you want. And that message is so kind of easily contrary and anti-gospel. And it's easy for us, I think, as believers to look into someone else's life and see that. Not that tons of people don't get caught up in it because there are a lot of people caught up in that. But it's easy for some of us maybe to look in from the outside and see that. Grieve that loss. So that one's more of an common um, easy one to see uh-huh. and to be honest with you a lot of us really like to war against that I'm one of those right? other times and when you think about this idea of a new good news gospel message uh, it's not so obviously anti-gospel at least from the outside looking in um, I, these kind of like a hard to see anti-gospel messages man that they, they range um from everywhere from from something like a social activism i'm just going to i'm just going to become part of something to change society right a political activism really want to get into the political atmosphere and kind of help change some of the policies in our nation it could be like religious activism right want to want to transform change the church want to want to weed out the bad stuff get the good stuff in want to plant new churches right i fall into this well um you also fall into legalism or moralism or pragmatism where if you just do it, it's going to produce this kind of result. It's kind of a pragmatism type thing. <clears throat> Everything that I've mentioned here, not all of them are bad. Um, but at the end of the day, the problem for us is that it's easy for us to say, hey, I, I'm motivated by the gospel. It is central in my life. Therefore, I'm going to kind of become an activist in, in this certain area that really excites me. And then what happens is the gospel kind of becomes less and less. And, and it's, it's just the motivator now, right? That's all, it's just motivated by the gospel. And the main theme becomes this theme. That's the new gospel. Make change. Get something new. Go to war. Um... That becomes this new gospel message inside of me. You see, the list of um, anti-gospel gospels, if they can even be called that, that's uh, endless. And you might not identify with the ways that I've kind of built some of the categories. There's probably lots of ways you could build the categories. I just want to get you thinking. Because at the end of the day, all of the false gospels that we could possibly believe in, however you characterize it, that they're all the same in this. And we have to agree on this. A false gospel basically promises you more satisfaction than the authentic gospel. A false gospel um, promises to, um, to satisfy a thirst or a hunger inside of you that has been developed by something that's out of whack. They promise satisfaction for our desires, for power, for control, or for safety, or for comfort, or for acceptance. That's what a false gospel does. And Paul knows, he knows that only the gospel of the crucified, risen, and returning Christ, only that gospel, the real gospel, is going to bring any real satisfaction to our desires. Now, I can only imagine what it must have been like for the apostle Paul to be chained to a Roman guard thinking and praying about the issues that he knew existed in the Philippian church. Things that he knew that the church was becoming known for. Things that were beginning to characterize the Christians in Philippi. 
the issues of self-centeredness and pride and complaining and arguing and disagreements and division that he knew were there, that he writes about throughout this letter. I feel very confident in saying that I think the Apostle Paul's desire to exert some kind of a control or some kind of power over the Philippian believers, I'm sure that that kind of desire would have welled up in his heart, would have become something like a hunger, something like a thirst that he wanted to satisfy. I know that he certainly had to have wrestled with the desires for comfort and safety, especially in the midst of his current circumstances, right? Lockdown. I imagine that he might have feared the rejection that he might face if he spoke truthfully. I, I, I see him writing that way at times to other churches as well. I, like, I fear that you won't listen to me. I fear that what I'm saying to you is too heavy for you. I fear that you can't handle the meat that I'm trying to feed you, that I've been feeding you milk for so long that if I feed you this, this meat that you might actually reject it. That's my loose paraphrase of something that Paul said to one of the other churches. So I, I think I can see the Apostle Paul fearing that rejection um, at times as he spoke truthfully. The question is, where is Paul going to find satisfaction for all of this mess and junk that we identify inside of us? Well, the answer is, he finds satisfaction in the message of the gospel being advanced among believers. It says in verse 14, most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord, by my imprisonment are much bolder to speak the word without fear. In other words, Christ is being proclaimed among the believers. And in verse 18, Paul even says that he rejoices in this. That the unlimited, unrestricted gospel is advancing among unbelievers and believers alike. And that brings much joy to Paul's heart despite his own limitations and restrictions and weaknesses. But here's the thing. The gospel doesn't advance without some kind of opposition. And to be honest with you, if you do a good study of the early church and the church um, throughout the ages, the place where the church actually thrives and grows the most is in the midst of opposition and persecution. It's not in the midst of some kind of freedom. It's in the midst of opposition that the, that the gospel just like flourishes. And I think some of that is because it has nothing to do with us in terms of our abilities, in terms of our yeah, uh, ability to do something. It actually has to do with us being in a posture and a position of being limited, weak, and therefore restricted. That's when the gospel, that's when Jesus Christ shows that he is powerful. Paul even says this in another place in scripture where he says, hey, it's not on the other side of my weakness that the gospel of Jesus Christ is strong. That's not when God shows up and proves himself. It's in my weakness. So in weakness, in limitation, in restriction, in opposition, that's when God is strong. In verses 15 through 18 of our text, Apostle Paul says that some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaimed Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? like what now only that in every way whether in pretense or in truth christ is proclaimed and in that i rejoice see this is a picture of the gospel advancing right through in the midst of opposition it's also a picture of a man 
Apostle Paul, who is in complete devotion, is completely captured by the gospel, so completely captured by it, that he actually has the humility to dismiss personal pain, to dismiss personal suffering, to dismiss personal discomfort. Oh, what if we Christians could dismiss personal pain, personal suffering, personal discomfort for the sake of the proclamation of Christ crucified, risen, and returning rather than using our personal pain, our personal suffering, and our personal discomfort as victimized tools to inflict more pain and hurt on people and use that in a way that we would manipulate it and say, oh, it's all for the sake of the gospel. What if? I preach to myself when I say these things. See, Paul doesn't castigate his opponents in this text as heretics like he does elsewhere in Galatians chapter 1. He, he doesn't confront these people for their behavior that is actually antithetical to the gospel like he did with his friends Peter and Barnabas in Galatians chapter 2. He simply speaks truthfully about their selfishness and their insincere motivations. So maybe Paul's opponents had felt emboldened by the fact that he was imprisoned. It's possible. Some scholars believe that his opponents were able to use Paul's circumstances for their own political or financial gain. But either way, the Apostle Paul was able to speak truthfully as well as dismissively of the opposition. Why? Because he saw a higher principle at play here. He rejoiced at the knowledge of the proclamation of the unlimited and unrestricted gospel of the crucified, risen, and returning Christ advancing through in the midst of opposition. So in conclusion... Like we've contemplated the, the limitations and the restrictions of our frail human existence, right? Uh, we've also contemplated the unlimited, unrestricted advancement of the gospel among unbelievers as well as believers in the midst of the opposition. And we've paid some really special attention to the evidence of gospel-centeredness in the life of this author, the Apostle Paul, who penned these words. We've, we've, we've contemplated, thought about, soaked in some of the ways that a devotion to gospel centrality may actually intersect with the desires of our hearts and the problem of sin both in us and outside of us in the world that we live in. And as we contemplate all of that, a <laughs> lot, big plateful of food, right? As we contemplate that, as we devour that, as we kind of consume that, always got to ask this one question. It's kind of like the vegetables that we don't like to eat. If we don't eat them, where's the food's kind of worthless, right? Well, not worth, still tastes good. Anyways, we must always ask this question. What difference is this going to make in us, right? Why does any of this matter? How does all of this talk of gospel centrality and the unlimited, unrestricted nature of the power of the gospel, how does it really affect my day-to-day -day life, my interactions with my wife, my children, my friends, my coworkers? How does it affect the ethical, moral issues in the world today and my interaction with them? What does it mean to keep the gospel central. Well, one author says it this way. He says that Paul was so gospel intoxicated. That word intoxicated has to do with this image of drinking too much, right? Drinking so much that you are now uh, saturated. And when you, when you get intoxicated with alcohol, you actually drink so much that, that your flesh gets in, intoxicated, saturated, soaked with, like a rag, and it's dripping alcohol. 
Paul was so intoxicated, so centered on getting the good news of Christ out to the lost in Rome that his feelings and aspirations, things he wanted, they were subsumed and subject to the gospel. See, this same author that wrote that, he says this, says, Paul's example is impressive and it's clear. Put the advance of the gospel at the center of your aspirations, our own comfort, our own bruised feelings, our, our reputations, our misunderstood motives. All of these things are insignificant in comparison with the advance and the splendor of the gospel. As Christians, we're called upon to put the advance of the gospel at the very center of our aspirations. So the question is like, what are your aspirations? To make money? To get married? To travel? To see your grandchildren grow up, to find a new job, to retire early. This author says, none of these things are inadmissible. None of them are to be despised. The question really is whether or not these aspirations have become so devouring, intoxicating, that the Christian's central aspiration of the gospel is squeezed to the periphery or even choked out of existence entirely. So I pondered and I prayed and I journaled studied this passage for a few hours this last week in preparation to preach. And that concluding quote, the thing that I just read through, was from a commentary that I read, and it weighed heavy on me all week. And when I survey the landscape of my own heart as best that I can in these troubling times that we live in, I, I try to put filters up on my mind. I try to put filters on my heart as like the fury of, of, of information comes at me full speed from all these multiple different news sources throughout the week, right? Like I'm, I'm a person who loves truth and maybe you do too. I love truth. I look for truth. I search for it. I, I fight for it when I get a hold of it. I also get very frustrated. I get very angry when somebody posits something as some kind of objective truth when it's really just simply their own opinion or interpretation of a truth. And I expect that there will be lots of confusion in sources that are not Christian. That makes sense to me. But it always surprises me when some kind of solid Christian source um, lands on a completely different end of a social or political or national or theological issue than some other solid Christian source. And then when they land at those different ends of the spectrum, they attempt to silence the dissent, silence those who are different, who disagree, while still believing in the freedom of speech. <laughs> I love a good, healthy, robust debate. Love it. Um, not a destructive one. I love a good, healthy one. I think the Apostle Paul did too. This is one of the ways that he um, reached the city of Athens by debating in the public square. But my heart is grieved by the unhealthy, sinful polarization that we see in the church today. My, my, really, my heart is grieved. If I just get away from all the externals and look at the inside, my heart is grieved at how quickly I rush to judgment, how quickly um, I become self-centered. How quickly I become prideful. How much my soul grumbles and complains to like apply the issues of this letter to my own heart. How much my heart listens to fleshly arguments. <clears throat> how quickly I get consumed with disagreements and then I live with this uh, divided heart. I'm such a limited and weak and restricted human being, right? Limited, restricted by the sin that is very much alive inside of me. And what I think I need and what I think the church needs, what I think you need is to be recaptured by the centrality of the power of the unlimited, unrestricted advancement of the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ 
crucified, risen, and returning. You see, it's the message of the gospel that enables me to put on the mind of Christ, as Paul says. It's the message of the gospel that enables me to work out my own salvation in Christ with fear and trembling on a daily basis. It is the message of the gospel that enables me to stand firm in the joy of Christ's salvation over me when there is no joy in my circumstances. So when the world is going to hell in a handbag, when my financial investments crash, when my kids are off their rockers, when my friends reject me and don't listen to me, when my enemies take advantage of me, when my country, I love America, when my country presses the gas pedal on this highway to hell that we seem to be on, when, when death affects my loved ones, when I feel the pressure of jumping on some crazy political bandwagon or else I'm going to face the fury of the mob, when I grieve the relational losses of this life, when my marriage isn't doing so well. Reality check. <laughs> Pastors' marriages aren't always perfect. I despise getting up and going into the office. When I give in to that old sinful habit again. In those moments, I need to come back to the centrality of the gospel. What does that look like? It looks like this. I need to remember. And if you're a believer... Trusting in Christ, you need to do this too. You need to remember that God, in all of his unlimited, unrestricted power, all of his unlimited, unrestricted love and mercy, patience, grace, sent his son Jesus to live the perfect life in my place and in your place, to die a horrifying death on a cross, to come back to life three days later, to promise eternity in heaven in the future, and to give me his spirit to live right now in the present need to remember that I am no longer a slave to sin, but I am now a son of the best father a person could ever have. My father, your father, if you've trusted in Jesus, he sings songs of joy over me. He delighted to spend time with me. He is still delighted to spend time with me and with you if you know him. There's never a moment in my life and in your life that he wasn't present for. All of the riches of God's kingdom are mine and yours forever. I am the recipient. You are the recipient of our Father's unconditional love because Christ became the recipient of the Father's wrath that was justly due to you and me. I and you, we are heirs to the kingdom of heaven, adopted by an everlasting Father. Our Father's signature on our adoption papers cannot be erased because it was signed and sealed by the power of the Spirit with the blood of Jesus Christ and then delivered into the Father's hands. According to Romans 8, also written by Paul, there is therefore now no condemnation for me and for you if you are in Christ Jesus. My Father, our Father in heaven, knew us intimately from before the foundations of the earth were laid. He predestined us to become his sons and daughters. He's conforming and transforming us into the image of Jesus. He calls us to himself like wayward children. He gives us the heart to hear him and to trust him. He justifies us once and for all. Through the shed blood of Jesus, he promised you and I future glorification with him in heaven. Why in the ever-living heck would we ever want to trade that gospel message for any other? Why would, why would we ever want to do that? You and I are severely limited, weak, restricted human beings. But the message of Christ crucified, risen, returning, the message of the gospel, it's unlimited, it's unrestricted, and it's power to advance among unbelievers and believers alike in the midst of of great opposition. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for this message. I pray, God, that you would remove anything that was fleshly in me and that you would provide no hindrance to the gospel, changing and transforming lives. 
Lord, I pray for others on the other side of the screen, God, that you would use it in unbelievers' lives to draw them to you, that you would use it in believers' lives to strengthen. And in the midst of a very weird, polarizing uh, season of great opposition, Lord, I pray that uh, the message of the gospel would just sprout and produce fruit throughout the world, and that many would be drawn to you, good Heavenly Father that you are. Lord, we love you. In Jesus' name, amen. You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com.